Blog Talk Radio. Come on, come on. Welcome to Beach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Beach State Pandemonium. You know, I know when Rich reported that um, 10, 15 years ago, whatever, is the way it used to be, but if I could re-record it, I would, would make it say the way it should be. Good evening evening and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for January 10th, 2019, our first show of the new year. This is Michael Norris along with Jerry Oates and Bobby Simmons. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you guys doing this evening? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Same here. Doing wonderful. No complaints at all. Well, has has the weather down Savannah Way made these drastic jumps like it has up here in Atlanta? Yes, Lord. It's it's I, I love this cool weather, I'm telling you. I do too, but I I mean, let's let's make up our mind. It was it was seventy degrees this time last week and now it's I know it. down in the twenties. <laughs> well, it's not that cold here. But it gets well, thankfully no snow so far. Yeah, that's but good. I've always said if it snows in the, in Atlanta and it's it's been my experience as long as I've lived here. If it's going to snow in Atlanta, it's either going to snow in December or February. Well, I see one of the weather people last night on TV said that uh, they had predicted that either in February or March we'd get a pretty good snow this year. We've been fortunate. We have just missed it a couple of times. Yeah, that's a mess when it snows up there. They just have to say snow and we shut down for a week. Yeah, for, for real. Well, people don't understand about the South. We don't have all that equipment. Right. Well, me not going to work every day anymore. As long as I'm in the house, I'm fine. Let it snow. <laughs> yeah, you don't care what it does, right? <laughs> Do you have to go hang out at the beach if it, if you if it snows down there, or has that if it has that event happened since you've been doing what you're doing? Yeah, it has. It's it's I stay with the bridges going down there and uh but I mean there's not many people down there now. It's just too cold and the wind it's always windy down there this time of year and you I mean it can be forty and it feels like it's in the high twenties. Yeah, I would imagine with that it's wind it. I would imagine so. Yeah, coming off that ocean what's it's it? just brutal. Well what you and what you and uh Kathy need to do is sell your house. Get your house on Hilton Head. That way you can go to work on a jet ski every day. You won't yeah, have to worry about traffic. <laughs> yeah. They say that place is so congested. They say it is just brutal over there. If I you started to cross over jet beach. ski jaws and think buffet and follow yeah, me yeah, home. <laughs> you can see Hilton Head from the beach. Savannah Bay, uh, Tybee Island, rather. You can see it. Everybody thinks Savannah has a beach. It doesn't have a beach. No, Savannah's like Mobile. It's a port city. 
You can go to right. Savannah. You can go to downtown Mobile, Alabama, and you can go to Galveston, Texas, and you can't tell them apart. They all look the same. Those port cities all yeah. look the same. They look the same. But they have some big freighters you, coming in here, I'm telling you. Night and day. Night and day. I'm surprised got Savannah big, doesn't have a, a cruise ship going out of it. You know, uh, I don't know why it doesn't. Oh, we got nowhere to park it. Well, Carnival, the closest one yeah. Carnival's got is Jacksonville. They've got boats that go out of Jacksonville. They have boats that go out of Mobile. Mobile, really? Yep, they have a they have a west. Well, matter of fact, they since I went on a cruise, they send me all kind of emails. They've got one in September. They evidently they do it once a year. It's a ten day cruise out of out of Mobile, and it goes down and goes through the Panama Canal. And then it turns no around and comes back up, makes a couple stops in Mexico, and then comes back. But that's most of the time on a mobile, they're four or five days, and they go to Cozumel and the Yucatan and right along that coast there in Mexico and then come back. If I could figure yeah. out how to live on one of them things, I think I would. Well, you get your job on that. Well, that's what I thought. I, you know, I talked to the lady that, that uh, cleaned the room, uh, cleaned our room while we were on the boat, and she said that she is she was working on a on a six month contract. And I said, "What's that mean?" She says, "I work six months without a day off." And she worked a split shift. She worked in the morning, and then she came back in in the evening to turn beds down and make sure everybody had towels and things. And she said she worked. The time she's not working during the middle of the day, and after she gets off at night, she says, "I change clothes. I'm a tourist. I can eat anywhere I want to on the ship. I can go swimming. I can go do anything I want to do." She said, "During the day, if we're at a port, I can get off, go shopping, do whatever." She said, "But as long as I do my, you know, as long as I do my job every day," and she said, "The end of six months, I get off, take a month off, and he said, then I'll sign a new contract." Agree. So yeah, that's. I know this young this young lady busted her hump. I don't know I don't know what they make. Yeah, I'm sure they work now. But a percentage of it is you know the tips that you give them. Yeah, that'd be a nightmare that job. Oh yeah, I talked to the girl in the uh, we we ate at the, we didn't go to the captain's dinner or any of that stuff. I wasn't interested in that. But we ate in the buffet every night. And the girl in the buffet, I talked to her. She was working on a nine month contract. And she, the way she described it, it was exactly the same thing. She worked a split Where shift. Where did you now go out of? Straight. Do what? Where did you go out of? Where did you I go went out, out of, of? Uh, Cape Canaveral, Port Canaveral, right beside. Uh, they call yeah. it Orlando, but it's just a little south of the of Cape Canaveral. Yeah, I've been on one one cruise. That was enough for me. Well, I didn't I, enjoy it. Well, the thing with me was I I needed some rest, and uh, one of my best friends passed away the year before, and his wife went with me. We went as roommates, and we got a room with a balcony, and we spent. <clears throat> my favorite thing was being on the boat. We we stopped at four ports, and I only got off at two of them. I stayed on the ship. I was I sat on that balcony, and people watched. I was as happy as I could be. Yeah, the people watching is one of the best things you can do. Oh, yeah. 
you know, I'm thoroughly convinced that some people never look in the mirror before they go out. <laughs> really? Oh, jeez. There was people there that had on. Now I'm not a small fellow, and I understand that, but I I take that into consideration when I get dressed. There was people on there wearing clothes, and I couldn't tell if the clothes were designed that way or if they had busted out of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was. But I did. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. That's good. Yeah, I always tell people, people ask me if I've ever been on a cruise, and I always tell them no, but I, I stop and think about it. I actually was on, went on a cruise before I could learn to walk. Uh, when my father got uh, got orders to go to uh, France in 1961, I was 18 months old, and we went over there on a uh, steamship. We crossed the Atlantic. No and I don't remember it. But uh, my mother said she would put me in a, um, not a stroller, but a walker, you know, those a baby walker. And I, yeah. I figured out if I lifted my feet up, I'd go whichever way the, <laughs> the way you <laughs> tilted the boat. <laughs> yeah, it exert no energy. <laughs> My parents kept a, 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 I guess my mother bought it in the uh, the gift shop. She had a painting of that. Uh, it was a little small, 8 by 10 painting of that, that ship that uh, hung on the wall of every house we lived in until the, the day <laughs> they died. No kidding. Uh-uh. Well, my thing's Christmas ornaments. I never... I never, me and Debbie, when we traveled, we never bought T-shirts. We bought Christmas ornaments. And uh, our Christmas tree was sort of like our lives is everywhere we, because me and her love to travel, go places. So when I was on the, that was my thing on the cruise. I bought a Christmas ornament everywhere we stopped. And I got a little, uh, you're talking about that picture of the ship. I have a little Christmas ornament that's uh, of the ship we were on that I put on my tree this year. Well, I've always been a, a T-shirt collector. I've and I've got more T-shirts than I know what to do with. And I would would if I had the money, I'd buy more. But every concert I ever went to, every band I ever followed, any kind of odd place, I I had uh, a whole selection of hard rock cafes from probably ten, twelve different places I went to. I would get those and the guitar pins. I've still got the guitar pins, but I only have one or two of the t-shirts I had and uh, you ever come across a, a, a an extra Oaks Brothers Jim shirt send it this way <laughs> so I could have hooked you up with a Jerry Oaks t-shirt in Wichita one night if you'd have been there yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry you just opened up that yeah, little just, <laughs> yeah screen t-shirt and that opened the door right <laughs> oh god yeah, guy gonna come to me and say everybody out there's got one of your t-shirts. Man, I saw I got a pencil and paper out and started. You were thinking about taking the rest of the week off, weren't you? Yeah, I was in the hole on every t-shirt. <laughs> Idiot. Oh God! When you buy oh. the t-shirts back to Wichita, never. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that was something else. Michael, have we lost anybody since our last little get-together? I was I'm just sure sitting here thinking that since the last time we talked, I, I can't think of anybody other than uh, Gene Oakland. Yeah, I never met him. I met him in Vegas a couple of years ago, just in passing, nothing. You know, he was. I guess he was good at what he did, but to me, and, and people have raved over him. Of course, you know, people that, that grew up watching him and all that stuff. But to me, he was, and this is no knock on him. He was very good at what he did. You know, but but as far as how he fit in the wrestling business, he just he seemed more like a carnival barker to me than than yeah, a sports yeah, I, I didn't, interviewer. Uh, yeah. But of course, when by the time he went to work for Vince and everything, he was a little bit more subdued when he worked for Vern because I'm sure Vern kind of kept him in line. But when he went to work for Vince, he he let it all out, and that that fit yeah, right, in, fit right with, in. Uh, oh, what he was supposed to do without there. a doubt. Yeah, he fit right. If you guys in. hear a strange noise? It's it's my cat. My cat can will ignore me all day long, but you let me get on the phone and she's in my lap staring at me like you're ignoring me. Whereas this is my well, you are, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, she won't have nothing to do with me by you know for as long as I'm on, not on the phone. She's I can't get her to have anything to do with me unless she wants to go to sleep. Then I was in my recliner here before I got on the phone watching last night's Hawks game, and she uh, she I was reclined back. She crawled right up in my chest and curled up and sleep. <laughs> I can pick Michael up to go to church or like took him to the doctor today and when we get back that cat's sitting in the window waiting <laughs> just staring. <laughs> and we'll pull up and she'll be at the door when he goes in trying to make her escape. <laughs> <laughs> There's something else. Okay. Our uh, guest has called in. Let me get him on the line with us. We want to welcome Peace State Pandemonium. Ranger Ross, who uh, Ranger, it was a, it was I guess Jerry, you were still semi-active in the business when Ranger broke in, but Bobby and I were long out of the business. But Ranger's uh, a native of Ackworth, Georgia. People know him from uh, Jerry Blackwell's Southern Stage promotion. I, I guess you, Ranger, you work for Jody Deep South promotion, and of course, uh, best known with WCW. You run there. Uh, how did you go from from Ackworth High School to the 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 military to professional wrestling? Did you grow up as a fan, Ranger? You there? Hello. That was a nice speech. It was a good practice run. That was a good introduction. <laughs> it wasn't him anyway, so it doesn't matter. I thought it was him, but it wasn't. Oh. I didn't look at the full number. I just saw, looked at the first three digits. So somebody's I'm talking to somebody and thinking, well, who in the world are you talking to? Who is to? this? Yeah. <laughs> That's probably somebody wanting to say you in church or something. It could be. Not on not on this line. He should should be calling in a little bit. Maybe I, and I'll have to redo the whole thing over again. We've gotten out of practice on this. 
Uh, but anyway, what were we talking about? Gene Oakland. I don't. I, but I can't think of anybody else, Bobby, to answer your question that, that, that okay. we've lost since the last time. Well, there he is. I'm going to do the introduction all over again. And Hello. in this corner from Ackworth, Georgia, weighing 246 pounds, Ranger Ross. I, man, I just gave you the best introduction, and it was for somebody else who called in. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I feel like uh, I feel like little Richard. Somebody always stealing my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll ask you the question I asked him that he didn't answer me. But uh, how did you go from from Ackworth High School to uh, the military to to wrestling? I, I assume you grew up watching Georgia Championship Wrestling and whatever else was up that way up in North Georgia. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I, when I was in the second grade, you know, they was, you know, they would come around the school. I mean, the teachers would ask the students, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And back then, firemen and astronauts was huge. <laughs> Everybody wanted to be a fireman and an astronaut. So when they got to me, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be a wrestler. And, you know, everybody's like, what? You know, and all through high school, and I told everybody I was going to wrestle, professional. But that was one problem. I wrestled in high school my freshman year at 98 pounds. Gee. I, I was a high school student, and I weighed 98 pounds. But here's the here's the, the funny part about that. I didn't have to make weight. I mean, I didn't have to lose any weight. <laughs> I was under 98 pounds in high school. So... Um, and then when I graduated from high school, I weighed 143 pounds. And I'm still telling everybody I'm going to be a professional wrestler. Well, nobody believed me. they like, oh, come on, man. You know, I was so skinny. And I had all the skinny jokes and all that stuff. And so uh, so I, I knew at 143 pounds, you know, realistically, I wouldn't, nobody was going to hire me to wrestle. But anyway, so I, I joined the Army Rangers. And uh, started eating Started, you know uh, I had a growth spur uh, At like 21 Because uh, when I graduated from high school I was only like 5'8 143 pounds And When I turned 21 I grew to about 6 feet And when I turned 24 I, tur- I grew another 2 inches <laughs> So apparently I was just a late, late, late bloomer yeah, the, my brother and, uh, was that way. My brother was five seven and one hundred and twenty three pounds until he he quit high school, and then uh, he was doing construction for a living. <clears throat> and by the time he turned, you know, twenty one, twenty two years old, he was six two and weighed uh, uh, about one hundred ninety eight pounds. Well, and you I know, was just I was, the opposite. I was, I was I was six foot three in the sixth grade. Oh, good lord! Uh, <laughs> did did you grow any more after that? Yeah, I, 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 height I mean, wise, I stopped at six. Yeah, I, I stopped at six five. Weight wise, I got up to about four twenty five at one point. But oh wow! Luckily, yeah. I've yeah. lost all that. But uh, so, who do you, did you? I'm assuming you went to the shows whenever they they would run North Georgia. Who did you 
who did you were your favorites growing up? Oh my goodness, man! I I was um, you know I was right here in the the mecca of professional wrestling. You know we had Georgia Championship Wrestling, and uh, I, I watched all of these guys. I mean, you know. I, I used to kind of gravitate to this guy. His name was uh, Les Thornton, the man of a thousand holes, you know. he Because I, I liked the way he wrestled, and, you know, the, the counter-wrestling and, you know, figuring out how to get out of holes and all that stuff. And so I, I, I liked that. And, uh, man, that was a that was just a treasure trove of wrestlers around here. Mr. Wrestling number two and uh, 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 Bob Orton Jr. And all of those guys was, you know, wow. It was just so many. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, yeah, I set him up, guys. He was supposed to say Jerry Oates and Bobby Simmons, but he didn't say either one of them. Well, yeah, he, what the heck? He, he, <laughs> well, well, listen now, th- those guys uh, during this time, I'm talking about when I was a kid, uh, they wasn't around then, you know. I mean, we're, we're, our age difference is not that much between uh, me and Jerry and uh, Bobby. It's not that much of a difference. Uh, so you must not get that. You and I are the same age. Here. I heard that. <laughs> you and I are the babies here. <laughs> I quit yeah. full time in December of '83. Yeah. See, I'm talking about you know wrestling back in the '60s and the in the early '70s. Early '70s is when I really, you know, watched it. And and they they even came to my high school, North Cobb High School, and wrestled. And uh, you know, got a chance to see some of the guys then. But, you know, after after four years in the Army, I still wasn't big enough. So I had to re-enlist for four more years to try to gain some more weight. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, after I got out. But here's what was the turning point. I was stationed in Savannah, and um, um, Jim Crockett Promotion and all of those guys was running Savannah. And I got a chance to, you know, I, I'm really at the point now where I got to make a decision. Either I'm going to reenlist for four more years, and by the time I get out, I would have 12 years, and I wouldn't have got out. If I made it to 12 years, I would have went on and did 20. So I was at the point, and I'm like, okay, I need to talk to some of these guys. So I went to the wrestling match, and in between the matches, I walked down close to the dressing room, and I met uh, Pez Watley. And I talked to him, and he told me about that Thunderbolt Patterson, you know, was thinking about opening a, a wrestling school up here in Atlanta, which was close to where I live. And uh, so he told me how to get a hold to him. And I went up, and I met with Thunderbolt. He agreed to train me. And I came up. I took my vacation. I had 30 days leave. So I took my vacation because I wanted to make sure this is what I wanted to do before I uh, got out of the Army. So I went went up and talked to Thunderbolt, and he said he would train me. So he trained me during my vacation, and I went back to the Army, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to be sink or swim. So I went ahead and got out of the Army at that time. And, uh, and then, you know, I uh, – Got with Ted Allen. He trained me because Thunderbolt ended up having hip replacement. So he couldn't train me anymore. So I went to uh, um, Ted Allen. Uh, No, before Ted Allen, I went to um, Morrisville, North Carolina, Nelson Royal. I trained with him, then came back and trained with Ted, and then went down and trained with Jody Hamilton. So uh, then, you know, Jody gave me a break. 
and and man, I I think my lucky stars were running into Jody. And uh, at the time I came into the business, I mean, there was a phenomenal amount of good wrestlers. I mean, you talk about the nightmares. You talking about Randy Rose, and you talking about uh, Jerry Oates and Mr. Wrestling Number Two. And I, these guys took me under their wing. And, and man, it was just like you know, I I was I'm probably the most blessed, luckiest guy that ever came into the wrestling business. Just to be honest with you, I mean, because I had all of these guys that had so much talent, they had been in the business so long, and they they took care of me. I mean, really, I learned so much from from working with like Jerry Oates. You know, I, I Jerry, you know, I love you, brother. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, this yeah, guy, you, man, you, he took, huh? You, you got in when it was still hot, you know. Oh yes, it was still hot, and I. Uh, matter of fact, Jerry and I had a good angle going there, and uh, we switched him from a heel to a baby face on me. And uh, man, that guy was on fire. <laughs> and 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 just think though, man, I'm, my first match was with Ted Allen. I mean, how how lucky? And my last match was with Ted Allen twenty years later. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> my last match was with him too, in a six man. Oh wow. Yeah, that's yeah, that's something. So I was I, I like I said, I got to work with Bob Orton Jr. I got to work with Dick Slater, and you know, I mean, you, you ain't gonna get no better than that. So, dude, I just it, everything just fell in place with me, and I came in at the right time. Had all of these um, these veterans that you know really you know try to help me out, and um, I, I'm just. Then after that, it just took off. I don't know. How lucky can a guy be? Where did you, what where did you start with Jody's group, the Deep South promotion? Yeah, I started with yeah, I started with Jody, and um, uh, 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 right off the bat, you know, they had me in an angle with the Nightmares, and uh, me and Don Sanders was tag team partners, and and next thing you know, we was the champions. And then uh, I started a, a singles program working with uh, uh, um, Jerry Oates and then uh, went on up and started a, a angle with Randy Rose. And, and I became the Deep South Heavyweight Champion. And I've only been in the business six months. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I, I just had, like I said, I had some good teachers and some people that just took me to the side and just really poured into me. And, uh, dude, I, I don't know how lucky a guy can be, really. And, and speaking and you of work for you worked with uh, Jerry Blackwell's group too, didn't you? Yes. Uh, Jody, uh, his, his, his um, um, uh, you know, I was – what what actually how I ended up leaving Jody was uh had talked to um um uh, Watts, Cowboy Bill Watts and they was gonna bring me in out there and um what's the guy's name? Um Joe Petacino. He talked me into, you know, that I would be able to go, you know, out there and he was kinda the mediator and just as I left Jody and uh, 
was going with Blackwell. Uh, well, actually, when I left Jody, I was going to go out there, but it folded. They went into all kind of issues out there. And so I ended up going with Blackwell with Southern Championship Wrestling. And uh, and a lot of the guys from Deep South had come over there also. So there I was working with Randy Rose again, who, by the way, is getting ready to be inducted into the the real professional wrestler Hall of Fame in, I think, in May. Did y'all know that? No, I hadn't no, heard I that. Yes. Uh, well, I'm. this is breaking news. This is breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Randy Rose is going to be inducted in May uh, uh, for, um, you know, the the one that's out in uh, Wichita Falls. Yeah, Texas. yeah. He yeah. used to be up in uh, New York. Yeah. Yeah, in May. He's going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, him, and um, I, I think it's supposed to be the original Midnight Express. So I think it's going to be Randy Rose, Bobby Eaton, and Dennis. And Dennis. Yes, yes. So that's going to be – that's going to, so, you know, hey, I work with a few guys that's in the Hall of Fame, man. How, <laughs> how lucky can I be? <laughs> Well, if they're going to do the original, they need to get Dennis, Randy, and, and find Norvell Austin. Yes, I think that's probably a problem, trying to find Norvell. Probably need a private investigator to go find that rascal. Well, he was, as far as I know, he's still in Pensacola, but I don't know. I, I haven't seen him. I, I, I saw him uh, probably just before Sputnik died, and the last time I talked to him was when Sputnik died. I called him. And uh, then I tried to call him when when Rocket died, and all of his numbers had been uh, oh, disconnected, and I, I didn't know how to get in touch with him. I know Levi uh, Banks has, has tried several times to, to catch up with him, and never could find him. But he was working in a uh, industrial laundry service uh, in Pensacola. With the, oh, the last time I actually saw him, I went by where he was working, and. and Spent a little time on Yeah, he and his daughter both worked there. Uh, he was driving a cab at one point, but he lost his, his driver's license, so he wasn't able to drive anymore, so his daughter got him on working at that place where she worked. And uh, that's where he was uh, the last time I saw him, and he was still there when I talked to him the last time. So, But I have well, no idea. Yeah, that would be neat to have Norville, Randy Rose, and Dennis Condrick, the original Midnight yeah. Express, uh, inducted into that would be awesome if they could find Norvell. I mean, that would be awesome. They're going to mess around and lose. I don't. I don't know how this game ended up last night. The Hawks were at one point they were like eighteen points up, and now they're one point up. <laughs> Well, I can tell you how um, it ends. <clears throat> yeah, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. Do a job. <laughs> I don't care. It, it, well, the way Hulu does, uh, and it'll record when it when it doesn't. Most of the time, when they, it'll record a Hawks game, it only records fifteen or twenty minutes of it for some reason. And then, uh, or if they re- it records for longer than that, it'll go till there's about. Three minutes left, and it'll cut off. So I don't know. I don't know how how Hulu how their their timing is, but it's that's the only thing I record that does that. Everything else I record records, you know, the whole 
show. All the all other sports, you know, and they but I have them record Alabama games and I have them uh, record Falcons and Saints games and the Hawks and the and the Atlanta United when they were in season and and the Braves when they're in season and it, and it records all I'm fine the, the complete games and afterwards and everything else Hawks are cut off so maybe maybe Hulu doesn't like the Hawks I don't know. Well, they know they know the finish, so they don't ain't no need to waste that last twenty minutes of the, of the fourth quarter. <laughs> well, do That's they do funny. the job in this game? Because they they're they're still one yes, point they do. Yes. one point in. Yes, so they lose. Yeah. They yes, yeah, yeah. Lord have they mercy. do a job. <laughs> oh well, it's all a work anyway. Where do they play? <laughs> In Atlanta, Phillips Arena. What used to be Do they call it Phillips anymore? It's uh, no, it's called State uh, Farm Arena or something. State Farm Arena now. Yeah, yeah. They supposedly remodeled it so they could give it a new name. Yep. Whoever puts the money up, they get that name on the building. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. How much money yeah. you ma- reckon Mercedes Benz puts out a year on naming stadiums? Because they got the stadium no, here plus the one in New Orleans. I can't imagine. Oh, listen. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've never heard, but I can't even imagine. Well, you, you think the price of those Mercedes? I guess they got a couple, you know, dollars laying around somewhere. I heard that. <laughs> Well, you had an adventure in the Superdome, Ross. Why don't you? What? Uh, and Jerry, I know you work more than one show at, at the Dome. So you guys yeah, can that compare was, notes. That was something else. Well, was, I can tell you. No, no, sh- go ahead, Jerry. Go ahead, Jerry. No, 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 no. It was just. That was an experience. I was going to ask Jerry, was the shows that you did was it was it the full dome open or did they have part of it closed off? No, the whole, the whole when I was there, the whole dome. Wow. What well, the heck of a building we go watch a football game in? I can't imagine the ring in the middle of that thing and and and, and you know it completely open for. Well, How close like did they ever come to filling it up? Or did they? Uh, no, we well, didn't fill it up. This was with uh, WCW. This was 1989, and I forgot what the the actual numbers were. But it was it was it was they had a good crowd. It wasn't full. It wasn't full, but it was it was a good good amount of people there. Because I don't know what the capacity is. I have no idea. Well, well, I know it'll hold 70, about 73,000 for football, and you had ringside seats to that. You're going to add to that, so it wouldn't hurt. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if you could put 74, 75,000 people in that place. Oh, like a cop. I refereed. I refereed the the Atlanta Stadium when we did the deal after the Braves game. And I want to say there was eighteen, nineteen thousand people there. And of course, in a fifty-two thousand seat stadium, it don't look like that many. But I mean, that was. I mean, I worked in the Omni, sold out, but it only hold about eighteen thousand. But uh, 
that's probably the biggest crowd I worked in front of was was at Atlanta Stadium. Is the Phillips Arena the same size? A whole more. You know, they I think I think Phillips hold about eighteen to twenty thousand. I think. Yeah, it, yeah, it holds a little more, I guess. They reconfigured it when they originally okay. built it. The, the premise was to sell more of those private boxes. One side of it was almost flat when it was Phillips Arena. And, I mean, one whole wall on one side, uh, if you're looking at a basketball court, one side of the court it had a few few rows of seats going up, but then it had this whole side that was private boxes. And then they they realized they weren't going to be able to sell those private boxes like they thought they were. And now that State Farm and then they reconfigured it, it, it still has private boxes, but I don't think as many. They added more uh, ticketed seats so they could put more folks in there. The Hawks draw pretty darn good to be such a horrible team. Mm. But Michael was talking about collecting T-shirts at concerts. The last concert, the only time I was ever in Phillips Arena, I won two tickets on the radio to see Paul McCartney and Wings. And I, I had never been, and, and me and Debbie went. This was before she got real sick. And the, and the ticket price, the price on the tickets was $282 a piece. And when we got there, I, I walked over and looked at the gimmick table, and T-shirts were like 75 bucks. Programs, $50. I mean, it was crazy. But yet, well, people doling that money out like it grows on trees. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can imagine well, it's going to be that expensive a, to see Paul McCartney. They didn't have a punch drunk box that sat on like Jerry O's did, so they, fans didn't get them for a What was it, Jerry, a dollar? Five dollars? Yeah, a dollar. <laughs> Sold them for a dollar. <laughs> It's not funny. <laughs> no, it's not funny. I, I can't believe they make it funny. You. <laughs> well, so Paul McCartney and Wings had to have been packed to the rafters. Oh, it was. It was. It was. You know, the funny thing, they they did the show on the 30th or 40th. I can't remember. I think it was the third. might have been the 40th anniversary of when the Beatles played Atlanta Stadium. And I remember that morning in the paper they showed a picture of a ticket from the stadium, the ticket price back then in 1966 or whatever it was, or 67, was was uh, $6. No kidding. Which was, you know, expensive back then. But, yeah, then they were up to 280 Well, the one the seats we had were 282 And, of course, like I say, I want them on the radio. I just got lucky. It's unbelievable. We are. Uh... We got a little off track. I was going to get Ross to tell us about his uh, his adventure in the Superdome. He did uh, did something pretty special there, well, and he met uh, somebody pretty special there. Oh, good lord! That was that was an awesome time down there. Um, anyway, I, I was um, Jim Hurd was the um, the head man at WCW, and we was going to New Orleans to the Superdome and. In uh, 1989, and I went to his office and asked him if I could do an Australian repel from the top of the Superdome, and he's like, "What?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "We we've done dem- demonstrations there before when I was an Army Ranger," and he's like, "Well, 
I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a rope wrapped around my waist. I'm going to hold it with one hand, and the other hand I'm going to hold the American flag, and I'm going to jump from the top of the scoreboard all the way down. He's like, no, I don't think we can do that because the insurance on that would be at least a million dollars. And I said, well, look at this. Just imagine if if I messed up and I splattered right in the center of the Superdome, I said the ratings are going to go through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> he said, he said, well, wait a minute. And he called up to the 16th floor. I think that's where all the lawyers were at. And he asked him, he said, can we get a policy for this guy to do a, a demonstration at the Superdome, repel? They said, sure, we could do it. And he said, okay, you're on, Ranger. He said, uh, tell me what you need. And he, you know, I told him what I needed, and he, they gave me this money to go get the rope and all of this. I said, now, the only way I'm going to do this, I'm going to need two Army Rangers out of Fort Benny. Uh, I need one on the top as a safety to make sure everything's hooked up, and I need a one guy on the ground to make sure everything is correct. And they said, okay, whatever you need, whatever you need. So I went down to Columbus, Georgia, to Fort Benny. I got two of my buddies, and uh, and WCW paid for their airfare to come to Atlanta, and then we flew to New Orleans. The wrestling was going to be on a Saturday, so they flew us down there on a Friday. They had the building open for us. So we get there on a Friday, and we go there. They opened the building up, and they had some couple of guys in there, and they had the producer and the director for WCW there, and um, they they said, okay, show us what you're going to do, and so they got a couple of guys from the building, they call them riggers, I think, and they took us up. You have to take an elevator up to the fifth floor. You get off of that, you go into a door, and you climb up a ladder straight up uh, for a pretty good while, and then you get on this catwalk, and it zigzags all the way to the apex, the very center of the Superdome. I could stand stand there, and I could touch the very top of the Superdome with my hand. Okay, that's exactly 300 feet from the top of the Superdome to the floor. Well, the only problem is you can't repel from there because of the um, the scoreboard hangs down. The, sco- the scoreboard hangs down. So, uh, um, um, so we had to repel from the top of the Superdome down to the scoreboard, which was probably another 125 feet, maybe. So we repelled down to the scoreboard, and we get to the scoreboard, and there's a catwalk all the way around the, the scoreboard. So we tied up there, and I got out. And uh, the producers and the directors, they were standing down on the floor. And I yelled at them. I said, you guys ready? And they said, yeah. So I'm uh, probably about 150 feet up. And so I said, okay, here I go. And so I just jumped off of this thing, and I'm holding this rope, and I'm sliding down face first. And I get to the almost to the ground, and I put on the brakes, and I stand up on my foot, my feet. So they was looking at me. They said, man, you are crazy. They said, but, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put a spotlight here. We're going to shoot it here. We're going to shoot it there. And I said, okay. And so me and the two rangers, we left. And when we get back and we looked at the rope, the rope almost burned in half. That was tied around my waist. It almost burned in half. I was like, oh, snap, what are we going to do? So we figured out we could take some electric tape, electrical tape and we would tape that rope up 
where it's, where it's going to burn at. So we got back to the hotel. We reconfigured it, got a new rope, wrapped it with electrical tape. And so the next day we get to the arena, and they said, okay, look, Wayne, you're going to be the fifth match. So we had to go all the way back through this whole process. It takes probably about 20 minutes to get all the way up to the top of the Superdome. So we go and we get up there to the top of the Superdome. We repel back down to the scoreboard, and me and one of the Rangers, we're just sitting there and watching all of the fans come in because we was up there probably an hour, maybe two hours before the show started. So we're sitting on the catwalk. You know, we had some water and some snacks, and we're sitting there eating, watching everybody come in, and we watched, you know, the four matches before me. And when it was my turn, they start playing my intro music, you know, Kason go rolling on, dun, 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 dun. and so I'm rigged up, and I'm leaning out, and I got the American flag. I'm waiting on the spotlight to hit me so I can go ahead and jump. And halfway through the song, there's no spotlight. So I'm like, okay, I got to go. So I just went ahead and jumped, and I'm, as I'm coming down, I'm coming down almost to the corner of the ring, but a little bit in the aisleway, and all these people would start looking up, and they could see me coming down, and they were scattering like ants down there because <laughs> it looked like I'm falling face first. <laughs> they were scattering. So anyway, I get um, I get down and get the rope off and get in the ring, and we burned up so much time. Now here comes the Iron Sheik with his gimmick. <laughs> and he's going, you know, and when we get in the ring, they're telling us to go home. It's, it's The matches should be almost over by then. So anyway, we get in the ring and we do our little deal for about, you know, five minutes. And then, you know, that was the end of that. And uh, so I go back to the dressing room and uh, come out and all of the um, formal, former uh, heavyweight champion was there. That was um, Gene Koninsky, uh, uh, Luthez, all of these guys. And, and they all were sitting right there together. And I walked over to talk to them. They said, man, you are so crazy. <laughs> they said, there's no way in the world. And they was calling me out kind of name. <laughs> well, there's one thing for sure. I'd have never stole your thunder doing that. No, sir. They hadn't printed enough money for me to do that. No way. <laughs> well, you know, we do stuff like that when you know when I was in the Rangers, so that was just like a normal thing for me to do. Right. So, so I didn't think it was such a big deal. But uh, and then you know I called home and asked them, "Did y'all see it?" They said, "Well, we didn't see it until you was almost to, down to the ground." So the guy that was the director, he got fired. It was two guys got fired because they didn't put the spotlights on. And WCW had paid for the building the day before so we can go down and practice and yeah. get everything. So they ended up firing a couple of guys. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> to get them to open the Superdome up for a half a day for us to go in and do that? Can't imagine. Well, the, the important thing was that did uh, did Cosro put you over? Yes, yes, it was uh, actually that. it was a uh, it was a uh, um, it was a deal where um, Rip 
Morgan come in and hit me with the flagpole, and then Junkyard Dog comes in, and we do a melee, and they bail out, and that was uh, that was a finish. Mm. I say that would have been bad for you if they had put the spotlight on you, and you go through all that that big intro and everything, and then he uh, he makes you humble. <laughs> 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 uh, well, I, I cause man, that guy was oh my god. We was I was working with him up in um, uh, Dayton, Ohio, and he had been back in the back working out with uh, Buzz Sawyer. They was out there working out, and they were sweaty and sweaty and just working out. And so it's time for us to go in the ring, and he puts all of this baby oil all over that the top of that sweat. He was so slick, man. I think I saw an ant walking across his shoulder and slipped <laughs> up and broke his neck. <laughs> I mean, he was slick. So we get in the ring, and I look out. Jody Hamilton was one of the road agents. He was sitting about six or seven rows back, just sitting in the audience watching the matches because he was write up a little report about the matches. Anyway, so we get in there, and I'm going to give uh, the Sheik a hip toss. And I go to give him a hip toss, and he slides right off and go down straight head first into the mat. Head first. And I looked over at Jody. Jody was laying across a couple of chairs. He was laughing so hard. Ted uh, Teddy Long was laughing, and I'm like, oh, my God, did he break his neck or what, you know? <laughs> so we get back to the dressing room, and I'm coming in the other entrance, and I could hear him in the dressing room going, that Ranger Ross, he's a jabroni. He almost killed me. If it wasn't for my massive 22-inch neck, I'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> his massive 22-inch neck is what saved him. <laughs> Yeah, when he first saw you in the back, I can imagine what kind of workout they were doing. When they first oh, came, in, <laughs> when he first came in, uh, back God, I don't know, must have been around eighty, eighty one. Uh, you know, he, he has that reputation. You know, he was crazy. You know, you you really never knew what he was going to do, and and he was he was dangerous. You know, I mean, if he wanted to hurt you, he could, and we all knew that. And we were it was a Tuesday morning. We we're doing interviews at the TV station. And uh, he's sitting there, and he sat down in a chair and had wheels on the bottom of it. And he leaned back against the wall, and he went to sleep. And when he did, that chair rolled forward, and he fell, and his head went straight down the wall, and it busted the back of his head. I mean, it looked like somebody had committed murder or something. His head, there's, there's blood running down. And everybody wants to laugh, but nobody will. <laughs> and finally, finally he got up and started laughing, and the whole place fell apart. But, I mean, you know, God, didn't I mean, he just—he was in his own little world most of the time. Yeah, yeah he's not kidding about that. <laughs> oh, the, the was funniest he out in one Seattle I, when you were out there, Jerry. Was he out in uh, Portland when you were out there? Yes. Idiot knocked mm-hmm. me out. <laughs> <laughs> so you work? So you work with him, Jerry? Oh yeah. I found out he wasn't as tough as he said he was. Not from me, but somebody else. He wasn't as tough as he said he was. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, but you 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 talking about Johnny Eagles, right? Johnny wasn't wasn't no slouch either. Ricky Hunter's one took care of him. Oh, oh, now there again, there's another one. It'd be hard pressed to say who was was rough for Ricky Hunter and Eagles. Of course, he had gone through the Wigan School and the Snake Pit in uh, England. That turned out Foley and Carl Gotch and all those Billy Robinson and all those guys. Yeah, he was dangerous too. Johnny was. Bobby and I were talking about the other <clears throat> other day, Ranger. You came along probably ten years too late, because if you'd come along in the in the mid early to mid seventies, you'd have, you'd have had a lot, whole lot longer career than you did. You had all the tools for it and had a great gimmick. <clears throat> wow! You could have had that GI Joe deal instead of Sergeant Slaughter. You know what's uh, ironic? It, we was uh, with WCW, and we was working in New Haven, Connecticut. And I had finished working, and I was going out to get a cab or something. I was going to go back to the airport and fly home. And as soon as I walked out the door, here comes Sergeant Slaughter up to the building. And he said, hey, you're just the one I wanted to see. And so he was talking to me. He and I, we talked, and he wanted to do a tag team. Uh, he had some ideas for a tag team deal with with he and I, and I said, "Well, come on, let's go in here and talk to him." I thought it was a good idea. So anyway, we uh, we go in and we start talking, and we talk to um, Flair and somebody else. And Flair said, "Well, you have that GI Joe uh, deal, and there's nothing we can do with that because, you know, you know they they get all of the, uh, you know, they have some kind of." Copyrights or something on that, so they shot it down. Mm. Was he yeah, out in Kansas City when you were out there, Jerry? No, before but he my was brother went back out there. He was, he was out there when my brother went back out there. But you know, he was just Ranger. You talking about right? shot it down? You said that he now? was Bob Remus, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you know, we're talking about they shot it down. If it's not their idea, they shoot it down. Oh yeah, That's yeah. Well, I works. had another idea. I had an idea um, because uh, they 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 really didn't want to. Uh, when I came into WCW, um, um, George Scott was there, and George Scott was the one that brought me in, and he wanted me to. He had some great ideas of what he wanted to do to push this, you know, the Ranger gimmick, right? And as soon as I get there and signed the, signed the contract, they oust him. And these other guys, uh, they formed this booking committee where everybody that was a booker was working, and all the thing they was interested in was getting themselves over. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. That's the way that works. <clears throat> And they did some stuff with me, man. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, for instance, they had this deal where uh, they was pushing me in the Iron Sheik, you know, for this gimmick, uh, this deal. And anyway, um, they they said, okay, this is what we want you to do. It was working at the Omni at the time. They said, we want you to do this deal. We're going to have Rip come in, hit you in the back of the head. You're going to lay down. 
and we're going to take the Iranian flag and cover you up. And that's going to get some heat. So, so here I am at the Omni, and they do this deal, knock me out. I'm laying out. They take the Iranian flag and cover me up with it. This was on a yes. This was on a uh, a Sunday night. On a Tuesday, we had TV taping. No, it was Wednesday. We had a TV taping at uh, center stage. And I'm, okay, we're going to do this deal. we really got some heat going now. And here comes the Iron Sheik out to do an interview. And the Iron Sheik says, I want Sting. Where's Sting? I want Sting. <laughs> I was like, what? And then they had him do a deal with the Sting, and Sting crushed him in about two, three minutes. Yeah, that's... Well, it was obvious. It was obvious they didn't know what they were doing, and, and Jerry's got it right. You know, it, not only if it wasn't their idea, but you you hit on where I was going. If it was any chance that it was going to get over better than what they were doing, you wasn't going to do it. Oh, there's a flat yeah. call it off, man. You know. Yeah. One thing. One thing about you know me the era that me and Jerry came up in. The bookers were smart enough to know. I always equate it to a watermelon. You can only slice a watermelon so many different kinds of ways, and then you got to throw it away and get a new watermelon. Well, if they got you and if they got you and, and me in an angle working, we're only going to be able to go so many weeks or months or whatever the average working, and then they're going to have to have something to take our place. But part of the problem with 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 WCW and part of the problem with with Vince and all these people now. They got the same people week after week after week after week after week, and they've got nothing coming up behind it to take its place. I mean, they're not working on anything underneath or in the different, and I just, I never understood that. Well, Bobby, they don't know how to do it anymore. No. That's lost art. Well, that, because the psychology is gone of it. And I remember when I came into the business, you know, the 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 heel, the bad guy would 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 paint a picture, you know, you know, good versus evil, and you know, work the thing. Now, if you watch a match, you really don't know who's the good guy or who's the bad guy. No, you don't. You don't. And they no, go out there and they just they just flying all over the place, and nothing really means anything. You know, you it just the psychology of the business just left with. Yeah, they're not telling the story. Well, I, I don't, I don't follow the current stuff. Other than, and when I can watch it, I'll watch Lucha Underground. But, but as far as Vince's thing goes, and I'm assuming the rest of them are booked the same way. Their idea of creative booking is taking two guys that are in a hot program against each other and making them a tag team for their TV. You know, and putting them against yeah, two other people, and it just—it makes no sense. And all these yeah. three-way dances and four four-way matches, not it just you know defending a world title and against you know in a three-way match makes no sense. And it seems like that's that seems to be 
WWE's favorite thing to do, or well, there was there for a while. But what sense does it make for for a champion to agree to defend his title in a match where the other one guy can can pin the other, the third man, and win the title and not even pin the champion? It just makes no sense. But I guess that's why I'm not in the wrestling business. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to be there because I don't understand it. I just don't get it. Well, to me, it's it's, it's simple. You 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 got a story. You got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And yeah. then, if you want to have a a, a uh, uh, what a, a second um, what a sequel? <laughs> then you work on that. <laughs> but well, you know, it, it's just like I mean, you know, that's, Tom Ernesto toted a book around all the time, and if you ever got the privilege to look at Tom's books, he knew what he was going to do three weeks down the road or four weeks down the road. Oh, like a thought. He already had it figured out. I mean, he knew. He knew where he was starting. He knew where he was going, and and now, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about something I don't know anything about because I don't know what they try to do now. They they uh, their house shows that they're doing. They were in Columbus the other night, and I don't think they drew very well over there. Uh, my my grandson and some of his buddies went to it, and he said it wasn't it wasn't very full, but. Uh, I just uh I don't know. I mean I know Kelly I heard I've heard Michael talk about Kelly. Kelly had a big uh I guess it was a blackboard. Yeah, he in the office Bob in Mobile. When Bob Kelly was booking the Gulf Coast territory, he had a a chalkboard in, in a room and he kept that room locked and he was the only one that had a key. Lee didn't even have a key. Kelly was the only one that had a key and he would map out four weeks at a time what you know, this particular program was going to go, how it was going to end, and uh, you know, and then if it, if it if it didn't wasn't going right, he had time to to kind of tweak it or whatever. And usually, he had a second line with what he well, going back to what Bobby was saying, what he was bringing, you know, right behind it. A perfect example. Um, in um, I'm trying to think what year. I think it was '73. The uh, the hot angle down there was uh, Ron and Don Bass with Mae Weston was was Maul Bass their mother, and they were having a, a series of, of tag team matches with Ken Lucas and Ricky Starr, um, and uh, Maul kept interfering, you know, and so they were bringing in different female wrestlers to work six man you know mixed tag matches. And finally, you know, Maul would beat all the other girls. Finally, they they went right to the top and got Mula and brought Mula in. They Mula was main eventing, and she main evented in Mobile for six weeks straight. The final blow off of that feud was her and Maul Bass in a cage alone. And then, but but coming up behind that, now that was that was a six week program. Coming up behind that. They had Rocket and Flash Monroe, Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan. They started out in <clears throat> uh, a tag team match, was the second match on the card, and ended in a 15-minute draw. They brought it back the next week, 
with a 30-minute time limit, they went to a 30-minute draw. The third week, now they're up to the semifinal, but the third week, they went to a 45-minute draw. <clears throat> that was the same night, the, the blow-off of the, of the Bass and Moolah thing. So the final, the, the fourth week, they had a main event. The, they were now in the main event. They went to a 60-minute draw. So then the, the fifth week, they brought it in, again, again, main event. It was whichever team got the most falls in a 30-minute period. And that, that was the blow-off. For, no, I take that back. That one ended up with uh, interference, so they brought Rocket and, and they brought Sputnik back in and had him worked into it. It ended up a, a six-man tag team match in a cage. Was a blow off of it, but that's just so he you had you had three months worth of booking right there at the beginning of how it was going to go. You know, blow, working one program to completion and then following the right behind it, building one behind it, and then taking it to completion and just rolling like that. I mean, you know, and it's what people don't understand. They talk about, you know, and and. Ross, you had a taste of it for because you worked, you know, some of the the uh, what was left of the territories before they all died out. They build everything now to a pay per view, and what do they run once a month now? Pay per view, yeah, something like that. So they build everything towards towards that, and then you know that ends, and then they start over again with a whole new batch of of different angles and stuff, and nothing nothing lingers. Hey, I mean. Back in our day, you had guys like uh, take Ricky Gibson, Billy Spears. They could work, you know, take their deal to three or four different territories, and did they did a, you know they worked against each other here. They they did in the Mobile Territory. I think they they matched up in in Florida, and uh, or like with uh, Jerry's brother Ted and and uh, Dutch Mantell when he was still Wayne Cowan. Here in Georgia, you know, again, they started out just as a, you know, opening match, and it just built and built and built, and they worked off every kind of match you can imagine. And they just don't do that type stuff anymore. No. Well, guys, I hate to cut this short, but I'm going to have to slide. All right. Well, Jerry. Hey, Jerry. Jerry, this is Ranger, man. Listen. I, I, I want to tell you, between you and me and God and everybody that's listening, I want to thank you, brother, for taking care of me. No problem. I, I, I'm, it, was, <laughs> it was an honor to do what little bit I could contribute. Well, you contribute a lot. You 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 put some wood in the fire. That's all I well, needed. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, it was good talking to you again here. You take care. All three. Bye, of you. you too, my brother. All right, okay, all right, man. Talk to you soon. All of you need to take care. All right, thank take you. Bye bye. Good night. All right. Bye bye. Well, out of all the guys you work with, Ranger, who is your favorite to work with? Dude, I, I thought I had won the lottery when I I got a chance to work with Bob Orton Jr. Uh, because I had heard everybody was telling me how good he was, and I watched him, and I watched. And one day, uh, just so happened, we was uh, working up in Calhoun, and they said, you're going to work with Bob Orton, Jr. And, brother, it was like riding a Cadillac. (laughs) 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 
It was like riding in the Cadillac because I, I had the misfortune of working with some of these guys that, you know, who man, I had easier street fights than working with some of them guys. <laughs> hey. Bobby, tell them your, uh, your two Orton Jr. stories with, uh, with, with Randy Rose and with Patera. <clears throat> the first time I ever met Randy Rose, uh, uh, he was, he was, I was walking down through the sports arena. I was on my way to the back to, to do something. And I heard, all I heard up in the arena was this. <laughs> so I walked up the ramp and looked and there on the floor on some furniture pads, Orton Jr. had this guy tied in a knot and all I could see was the soles of his feet and his butt. And Bob looks up and he goes, "Hey, Bobby." He says, oh, "This is I won't I won't blow his gimmick and tell you his real name." He said, "This is Randy Rose." He said, "Randy, tell Bobby, hey." And he goes, "Hello." I said, "Hey, how are you?" <laughs> and he was working him over, son. You know, not not hurt, just just tying him up. But my favorite one is is uh, the one I'm sure you're talking about. Was we were in Albany one night and he was working with Ken Patera. And, uh, you know, Patera was the world's strongest man gimmick, blah, blah, blah. So for some reason, and I don't remember what exactly happened, <clears throat> they were doing a deal where Orton would lock up with him and he'd do a little something and then he would scoot, you know, putting over his strong man stuff, not letting him get his hands on him. So for some reason, I wound up on the floor with him. <clears throat> and I don't remember why. I don't remember why I was on the floor. But... I'm looking at Orton Jr. We're standing on the floor, and Patera stomped his feet and goes, let's wrestle. And Orton looked at me and said, he wants to wrestle. I said, that's what he said. We went back in the ring, son, and that Orton tied him in a knot in a hurry. And I'll never forget Patera going, let's work, let's work. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, Orton Jr., he was a... Uh, him and Dick Slater, when, when, when Gary Hart made them a team here, uh, they were so innovative and did things that nobody else was doing, and they were so good at what they did. Uh, uh, just a pleasure to be in the ring every night. All I had to do was stay out of the way. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I'm just thinking back of all of the people that I work with and uh, that was just so good. I mean, they could work. I mean, they were just I, – I, I tell you, man, it was some great workers when I came into the business. I, the funny one was, <laughs> you know, Dick Slater, he couldn't see all that good anyway. <laughs> I'm working with him down in uh, – in, um, we did a two-shot deal. We was working down in um, Columbus, Georgia, and then we were going to run the Omni that night. And this is, was right at the end of uh, Bill Watts. And that's how I was supposed to go with Bill Watts right after that. But anyway, so I'm working with Slater down in uh, um, Columbus. And he shoots me off the rope. And he said, watch the fist. And he hit me right between the eyes with a knuckle sandwich. And it might have looked like I took a bump. But it wasn't a bump. It was just that he hit me so hard, my feet went up under me, and I just fell on my back. <laughs> and I'm laying on my back, and I had my eyes closed, and I opened them up, and everything was just kind of blurry. And Dick Slater standing there, you know how he do that little goofy, you know, back and forth thing with with his arm cocked. And he looks up the referee and he said, "Is he dead?" 
<laughs> I said almost. <laughs> he was sorry about that kid. What well, was <laughs> something similar? Was it was it Slater that was working with Moondog Maine, Bobby? That... Yeah, it was, it was the same question. We were in we were in Carrollton. We we had worked Columbus TV. You know, we used to do Columbus TV live. We'd work Atlanta TV in the morning, and we'd leave and go to Columbus, and it was live from four to five o'clock. And we were, it was the Saturday before Christmas. We're shutting down for a week. And uh, we, uh, when we left Columbus, everybody was fine. When we got to Carrollton, Moondog was staggering drunk. I mean, he was, he was fried. So the, the, the finish was, he slammed Slater. He was going up on the top rope and come off on him. Slater was going to move, get up and make his comeback. We were going home. And uh, he slammed Slater. And when he slammed him, he got out and he went up on the top rope. And he got up there, and and he fell, but he he didn't fall forward or sideways. He went backwards, and I mean it was like a tree. Nothing moved. He just the last thing to leave the ring was his feet, because he just went straight back and straight down. And I looked down at Dicky laying on the on the mat, and Dicky looked at me and went, "He's dead." <laughs> and uh, I walked over to the to the edge of the pole. I was afraid to look. I walked over to the corner and I looked over, and he was laying on the floor, and he was laughing. And he hollered at me just as loud as he could holler. He said, hey, he said, how about counting me out? And I said, not a problem. <laughs> I counted 10, and we went home for Christmas. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that Dicky Slater was a wild man, son. Oh, my God. It didn't matter to, where we went, Ranger. I mean, it doesn't matter where I refereed. The next morning, I had to be in the office at 9 o'clock. I mean, if I went to Savannah and got home at 3 in the morning, I had to be in the office at 9 o'clock. I mean, it was just the way it was. So Randy, my buddy Randy that you know, he, he, he would drive, and I would he'd let me sleep coming home because he knew I had to get up and he could sleep in the morning. So we were coming home to Savannah one night. We were in my car, and Randy was driving, and I was asleep. And I felt the car wobble. So I immediately opened my eyes, and all I saw was a set of taillights. And they were they were getting away fast. And I said, Randy, what was that? He said, that was Slater in that Corvette. I said, all right. He must have been running 125, 130 miles an hour. I laid my head back down, and I just had closed my eyes, and I felt the car wobble again. And I looked up, and there's another set of taillights. And they're moving away from us pretty fast. And I said, Randy, who was that? He said, that was the state patrol chasing Slater. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, wow. I'll give you one other Orton Jr. story. Now, they swear this is the truth. We used to, when we came back from Columbus back then, there was no such thing as I-85, 185. We had to go, we, we had to go old 85 through all those little towns, George 85. So one of the little towns we came through was Sonoa, Georgia, and they had a traffic light. There was nothing there, but it was a traffic light. And uh, they had an old cop that would sit there, and he would he would sometimes just stop us because he wanted to talk. So he, Slater and Orton were riding in Slater's Corvette, and, uh, you know, if, if anybody that knows Bobby, Bobby, Bobby stuttered pretty bad. Uh, that's why he didn't do a lot of interviews. Most somebody always talked for him. But we, they pulled over, and uh, Slater left two wheels on the pavement and two wheels on the gravel, 
And this cop in Sonoma pulled up behind him, got out. And as he started up toward the car, Slater stomped it. And they said he threw rocks and gravel all over the cop, all over the car. Said the guy, you know, his water didn't stone him to death. He said, you know, but they say Slater went from from Sonoma to Villa Rouge Apartments where they live. And I'm not sure how many miles it is, but they said he did it in 13 minutes. And they said... They said Junior had a beer in his head, and they said he never took a sip of it. Said he just sent her to hell the can. Said he never said a word. <laughs> God, those were some fun times back then. I mean, just think of all the stuff that went on. And nowadays you'd be under jail, under the jail for doing oh, some of that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if everybody had had a cell phone with a camera on it on their side back then? I've told Charlie Smith we'd all be in the federal penitentiary. <laughs> and then the funny thing is, you could tell people like that are listening to this, and some of them are like oh, I don't believe that happened. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I had a lady in my church. I told I was I was I had come back from a reunion in Mobile, and she came up to me and she was very big, very serious. She says, "I don't understand why you go down there and listen to all those lies every year." <laughs> and I started laughing. And I said, "Let me explain something to you." I said, "Number one, there's probably more love in that building on a Saturday than there is in this church on a lot of Sundays." And I said, second of all, we wish they were lies." I said, you can't make this stuff up. I don't know how many signed autograph or autograph pictures of Harley Race you had to send off. Oh, geez. Because his, his traffic stops. He would call me. He was a world champion. He'd call me. He'd go, he'd go, Bobby, sign 10 pictures and send them to this deputy sheriff in Kansas City or this guy in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, or whoever. He'd, you know, where he got pulled over. He'd conned his way out of, you know, getting a ticket. Now, that's the one that I heard all of the stories about uh, in his driving. He said he would pull up behind people and just push them. He, you know, there was a lot of guys do that. We're talking about Moondog Maine. Here again, we're going back now to the 70s. When we would come out of Albany, you didn't get to the interstate until you got to Cordell. That's about, what, 35, 40 miles over through there. And uh, I was coming up that little old two-lane road one night by myself, uh, dark, you know, and all of a sudden there's something pushing me. And I can't see anything behind me, but something's pushing me. And we got to about 90 miles an hour, and I'm starting to get concerned. And all of a sudden <laughs> it backs off of me. Bright lights come on. And he comes around me as Boondog Maine in a van. And he had, I don't know how far he rode with the lights off to get behind me. But he pushed me maybe a half a mile. And then he comes around me and blows the horn and goes on up the road. <laughs> that same wow. road, Bill Dromo was driving his pickup truck. I was riding with Bill. We had went down there. And, and Daryl Cochran 
for some reason, had gotten down there. I don't know how he got there, but he had gotten to the town that night, and he didn't have a way back. He wanted to ride with us. Now, I wait the whole time I refereed, I never weighed over 240. I went from 220 to 240. Dromo was 245, 250, 260, and Cochran was a good 240, you know. Now, all three of us is crammed in the front seat of Bill's pickup truck, and guess who's in the middle? I mean, I'm just jammed in there trying to, you know, and we're coming up there, and all of a sudden we got blue-lighted on that same road, and we pulled over and stopped, and we heard the voice come over the PA system, everybody out of the truck, and assume the position. So here is me, Cochran, and Dromo on the side of the road, up against the truck, and the guy goes feet wider apart, feet further back. Well, I mean, we're almost pushing the truck because we're all laid over that far. And then we heard somebody <laughs> laughing, and it turned out it was Jerry Lawler and and Tara Tanaka, and Lawler had a blue line and had was on the speaker on his CB talking to us. <laughs> Oh, it was, oh, it was here my in Georgia God. that Harley broke that Harley broke a state trooper's arm. That was here in Georgia, wasn't it? Yeah, that was in that was in Butts County. Uh Harley had a Trans Am and <clears throat> if you remember the Trans Ams they had a they had a lid you could pop up, it it didn't come back, it opened sideways. And and not that the designer knew this would be like this, but you could put a six pack, it would sit right in there. And Harley had a six-pack of beer in there. He was coming home from Macon. And a state trooper stopped him and realized who he was. And uh, he said, you've been drinking. He said, I've had a beer. And he said, well, I'm going to look in your car and see what I can find. And Harley told him, he said, without a warrant, you're not. And the guy was a young guy. He said, well, you just don't know who you're dealing with. You just need to stay over there and behave. And Harley said, if you put your arm in that car, we'll break your arm. And he put his arm in there, and Harley did. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was... There was some crazy stuff back then. You, you, you grab a state trooper now. Can you imagine how much time you're going to get? Oh yeah, please. <laughs> we all you had CB back then. You know, everybody had a CB. I mean, you know, it was just we didn't talk to each other much, but we, but we talked to the truck drivers, and you know, it helped us and pass time getting home and so forth, and. uh we're coming home one night. Here again, we're coming home from Albany. And uh, Rocky Johnson, I put the first CB Rocky ever had into this Cadillac. And he hadn't had it long. And he was still new to it. And, you know, when you had a CB, you could tell if a guy didn't, you know, was new to it. So all of a sudden, this voice comes on and he goes, Hey, hey they shouldn't give black people a license to have a CB. Y'all can't talk. Sound like got snuff in your mouth. Well, Rocky got hot. <laughs> So Rocky, Rocky just he's all over the guy, and the guy just kept on and on and on. Well, I, you, you know better. You don't want no part of me, boy. I, you know, it just went on and on and on, and we're all listening to this crap, and uh, we don't have a clue what's happening here. So the guy finally says, "I tell you what, there, boy." He said, "I'll meet you at at, at the exit at Highway 54 in Mara, Georgia." Said, "You be there." Right there, you pull off right there by that exit sign, and I will be there, and I will beat your butt. So Rocky's hot. Rocky pulls over. He's off the side of the road. He's standing outside the car, done took his shirt off, and got that got that CB speaker in his hand going, where are you at? Where are you at? And he said, I'll be there shortly. 
and Jody Hamilton was up on top of the bridge looking down at him, and it had been Jody the whole time. <laughs> Funniest thing you have ever seen. I saw Rocky at Scott Teal's back when well, you were up there back in September. And I, we were talking about that. Yeah. He said that Jody Hamilton had me so mad I was ready to kill him. <laughs> Best one is uh, the state trooper pulling you guys over looking for Tony Atlas. No, he they didn't pull us over looking for Tony. He Tony ran off the road. He had a big blue El Dorado. And we were coming home from Athens, and he ran off the road. He's down in a ditch. And uh, we seen the car, and we pulled over and stopped. Me and Randy got out and walked up there. We didn't know what was going on. And Bill Howard pulled up behind me, and he got out and walked up there. And uh, the state, it wasn't a state trooper. It was a county policeman. And he looked just like that guy from the Dodge commercials. You remember the Dodge commercials? Hey, boy, you're in a heap of trouble now. Oh, just yeah, like yeah. him. Look just like him. <laughs> And so Bill goes, you know, this guy likes to swing in trees. He may be out there in the trees somewhere. And this stupid cop is walking out through the trees with a light shining up in there looking at him. So Bill knew he had a live one. And he told him, he said, well, you know, maybe he's under the car. Now, this car, they wasn't six inches clearance. This guy got down on his hands and knees and crawled all the way around that car. We're up on the hill. We're dying laughing. And, and, and Tony pulled up. There was some people pulled up, and Tony got out of the car. He had gone to call a wrecker, and the cop said, what happened? He said, I avoided a deer. Now, I don't know if he went to sleep or if he swerved to miss a deer or what he did, but the cop asked him. He said, well, he said, I really don't see no damage to nothing. He said, do you ain't going to come pull you out? Said, he said, do you need me to make a report on this? He looked up there at the three of us standing on that hill, and he went, no, sir. He said, "Them three standing right up there, I'm going to make a big enough report out of it. <laughs> I guess we can tell it. This is this is this is people tuning in this on Ranger, tell Michael the story about Lord Littlebrook. That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Oh my God. <laughs> well, uh for those of you who don't know, Lord Littlebrook, he was a midget. And he was a manager for the uh militia, which was Rip uh Rip Morgan and uh, um Jack Vickery. Vickery, anyway, and Lilbrook, he was he should have been a stand up comedian. Uh but anyway, uh we we had finished wrestling that night and we was at some restaurant slash bar and he, I, apparently he liked taller taller girls, you know, women. And he was talking to this woman. <laughs> And this is the best pickup line I've ever heard. He said, uh, "He said, uh, listen, I know, you know, you used to guys always talking about going down on you and all that. He said, but you haven't lived until you had a midget go up on you. <laughs> That's funny. Oh my God, he was. This hilarious. was probably. I know this was before you started coming to Mobile. We had went down. We we used to go down on Wednesday and say till Sunday, 
and we were we had went up to Dick Russell's to eat on Wednesday night or Thursday night, and there was probably ten fifteen of us there, and uh, Charlie was being his normal self, and he told the little old waitress who was probably seventeen eighteen years old, she says, he said my wife's going to be here tomorrow. I said we've been married for fifty years, and this little girl said, well I'd really like to meet her. He she said because I hadn't known you but about fifteen minutes and I can't stand you. <laughs> oh wow! Well, the uh, what's his name? Um, um, when I was down there, I think it was the the first. I think it was my first mobile trip, and Kenny Arden was down there. And Kenny Kenny was Kenny. hilarious. Big Kenny, man. God rest his soul. He was hilarious. <laughs> we went out to the um, to the um, memorial site and got on the submarine and the ship out there, Mobile. And we came back and we stopped at this uh, restaurant uh, to get something to eat. And Kenny was he would just he had more one liners than you could shake a stick at. He was he was talking to this little young black girl, and he said. He said, I, I see how you're looking at me. I know you want me. He said, once you go fat, you won't go back. <laughs> <laughs> he had that T-shirt he wore says, I hate fat people. I thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> I, have a, I have a shirt hanging up in my closet right now. Um, Randall Brown, rest his soul. <laughs> He he it was it's a polo shirt, it's white collar, and he's got embroidered. It's not it's not stenciled in. It's it's stitched in, and it says on the shirt. It says right where the shirt pocket should be. At, it says, "I beat anorexia. Shyness is next." <laughs> <laughs> The best shirt I've ever seen. He gave me that shirt. I was like, Go ahead, is it what now? I said, the best shirt I've seen like this, and you'll have to excuse my language, but <clears throat> Ken Timms had one. He he came to the first time he and, or I guess it was the only time he and Juanita ever came to uh, Mobile. She came after he passed away a few times, but the first time he came down there, you know, he rode motorcycles all the time, and uh, but it said on the back of his shirt, "If you can read the back of this, sh- if you can read this shirt, that means the bitch has fell off the back." <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you one more uh, of uh, uh, Randall Brown. Randall Brown, <laughs> me and Randall and my wife, we and uh, um, Dogma, darling Dogma, she's a midget. And anyway, uh, we we was down in Mobile, and after the event, so we was trying to find something to do, and there was a karaoke bar there. Well, Randall loved to do karaoke. And anyway, we go in there, and we go in the door, and you could smell cigarette smoke. It was just, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not staying here. But we go up there, and the guys, you know, it's like a $10 cover charge, I think is what it was. And Randall, without missing the beat, he said, Ten dollars, he said. Well, okay, he said. I have my girlfriend here, and she's a midget. Can I get her in at half price? 
<laughs> and Dogma Dogma kick ran in the way. She kicked him. <laughs> Randall could tell do some crazy stuff. <laughs> oh, I have a belt buckle to... that he sent me. He won it as a door prize in Mobile, and, and I told him, I said, the day he won it, I said, you know, I said, I'm not much on these door prizes and stuff. I said, but I really wanted that belt buckle. I said, I like that. And he goes, well, I'm sorry. So about a month or two before he died, I went to my mailbox, and there was a box in there, and it was it was from North Carolina, and I opened it up, and it was that belt buckle. And he said, uh, I still got the letter back here. He says, uh I will never wear this, and I know how bad you wanted it, and you will wear it. And he said, uh, this doesn't mean we're engaged. We're not sleeping together. We're not even going to kiss. This is just from one brother to another. <laughs> and it's signed Randall Brown. I've got, I've got it back there in the drawer. <laughs> you know, I, I had um, ran into some of the guys. They was having the uh, the Charlie Smith appreciation thing out in Monroe uh, a few years ago. And I went there. I saw you there. Um, yeah. Yeah, you were there. Yeah. Yep. And anyway, I was talking to Mark Cooper, and he was telling me that Randall wasn't doing good. And so I, I called Randall, and it kept going to voicemail. And um, somebody told me that he was under hospice care. So I, I was telling my wife, I said, look, we got to go find him because I'm concerned about his soul. Yeah. You know? And I said, we need to, I need to make sure he's right with the Lord. So me and my wife, we jumped in the car and we drive all the way up to Shalope, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I had been to his house once before, but I couldn't remember where it was at. But anyway, we stayed at Myrtle Beach. And I said, we got to go find him. And I called the hospice place and they said, well, he's not here. I think it was Cape Fear Hospice or something like that, and they said, he's not here. And I said, well, do you know where he's at? She said, I can't tell you. She said, have you checked his resident? Have you tried his resident? I said, no. She said, well, if I was you, I would try there. But I can't tell you where he's at. I was like, okay, she's telling me. Yeah. So we go and we ride around and everything is looking. I said, yes, down this road. So we go to the road. And anyway, we find his house, and we go there. His girlfriend comes to the door, oh, so glad to see you. She said, you know, he was out, you know, this morning. We thought he was done. And apparently he, he didn't he didn't want to go for the finish, so he kicked out. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I go in there, there was uh, uh, Woody and Mark Cooper was in there, and Randall was sitting up in the bed talking 100 miles an hour. But he was in a coma earlier that morning, and he come out mm. of the coma, woke up talking 100 miles an hour. So Woody and uh, Cooper, they stayed there a little while, and they left, and me and my wife were sitting there. And Randall was just going on and on, just telling all these stories, and, and he was talking about how his testicles had swollen, swollen up. <laughs> he said, he said, I'm talking about they are huge. Randall, he said, <laughs> he said, listen, he said, I've been to two World Fair three buzzard screwing, and six flags over Georgia. And I ain't never seen nothing like that. (laughs) 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 And 
at any rate, we were sitting there, and after about an hour, he's just joking and going on. My wife, she's like, "Look, we gotta, we gotta get what we came here for." And Rand, she said, "Well, Randall, have you thought about, you know, dying, you know, and you spending eternity?" And he said, "You know what? I'm glad you asked." He said, "Do y'all have a minute? Y'all have a few minutes?" I said, "Yeah." So we sitting there, and he was telling me that this uh, uh, preacher had come to the the um, the the hospice place where he was at. Yeah. The hospital and was talking to him about the Lord and all of that. And he said, you know, I thought about it and all that. And he said, you know, he said, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been a heathen all my life. And he said, why would God save me now? And just because I'm on my deathbed, he's like, well, you had plenty of chance to get right. He said, you know, he just couldn't believe that God would save him. Yeah. And I said, well, Randall, that's the problem with being uh, believing in the Lord to being saved is everybody try to make it so difficult. I say it's not. It says in the Bible that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross and he rose on the third day and sat at the right hand of the Father, if you believe that, you shall be saved. And then it says there's a period, period, right at the end of it. That means stop. It's just shut up. That's the end of it. I said, if you believe that, I said, but, you know, everybody makes it so complicated. And he was like, really? He would do that? I said, yeah, do you believe? And he he accepted the Lord right there. There you go. There you go, man. Wow, okay. Man, me and my wife, I got up and I moonwalked across the floor. (laughs) And anyway, he died like two days after that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was the reason we went to see him, you know, just yeah. make sure he was right, you know. Yeah. Greatest greatest example you I got in the world of that is that thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. And he knew he was dying. Yep. And, and you're, you're he, so he, right, he people into, make it more complicated than it is. He, he, yeah. he that, that thief on the cross, I always say that he, he went into heaven riding on Jesus' coattail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. So I, I was, you know, that's that's my memory of Randall. You know, he accepted the Lord, and I, I'm I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. The only only time I ever saw that big rascal cry was the day me and Jimmy Powell come out of the pulpit after Jimmy after Ted Allen's funeral. He was calling oh. when I come around that corner there, and he grabbed me. <clears throat> And uh, he just he would just tore up. Uh, I think yeah. it affected a lot of us a lot, lot more than we thought he would when he when he left us. Man, I learned so much from that guy. Man, Whew. me and Ted used to ride together, and he had a little um, um, little two forty Z. Uh huh. And we used to ride. <laughs> I just got in the I just got a story about we, that too. <laughs> we was riding down the road. This is like, you know, like our first or second. I think it's like our first trip together, because I've only been in the business a couple of weeks anyway. But you know, back then we was working like four days a week. Yeah. And anyway, so we're riding down the road, and they was playing this song by the OJ's, and they come on. Dun 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 dun. dun. What they do? They smile in your face. You know what I'm? Oh, y'all mm-hmm. heard that Backstabbers, song, right? yeah. Oh yeah, backstabbers. backstabbers. Yeah. So we're riding down the road. Neither one of us saying 
anything. And that song come on, and it gets to that climax part. Dun, 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 dun. And we both said it at the same time. What they do? And we looked at each other. We laughed. We laughed for 50 miles about that. And so anytime I would call him on the phone and he would answer the phone, I'd say, what they do? <laughs> yeah, we were in Mobile. We agreed uh, with each other. We left. Uh, we were on the way to Mobile, and we run into Ted over on 65. And I got out of Charlie's van, and I got in the car with him, rode him on into Mobile. Well, when we got ready to leave that Sunday, Ted was going to see a girlfriend up in, in North Alabama somewhere. And he told me, he said, ride with me up to Atmore. He said, we'll get off there. And he said, you get in the car with Smitty, and then I'll go on up my way, and y'all going home. So when I got we got to Atmore, I got out of Ted's car and got in the van. Well, <clears throat> we started pulling down in the parking lot, and I asked Charlie, I said, what's that smoke down there? And he said, what? And he looked down. We raised the hood, and the whole top of his engine was on fire. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and... uh we uh, the lady at the gas station come running out with a fire extinguisher, and I pulled the pin and mashed the button, and nothing happened. Mashed the trigger, <laughs> nothing happened. I threw it down. And I told Randy, I said, "You need to get our clothes out of this van, throw it on the ground over here." Well, he did. She come down there with another fire extinguisher, and by the time I got got it open and working, it was a lost cause. It burnt that van to the ground. I mean, it burnt the rubber <laughs> off the tires. I mean, it burned it to the ground. Now, while the farmer are there trying to put it, what's left of it out, Charlie's trying to sell them gimmicks. <laughs> so the guy, so Ted goes, Ted says, I'll be right back. And he left. And, and Randy <laughs> said, where's he going? I said, I don't know. So about 30 minutes later, here comes Ted back over the hill pulling a U-Haul trailer. And he said, Two of y'all ride in the trailer, and one can ride in the front with me. Well, I just went right on up there and got in the car. <laughs> so Charlie and Randy rode in that U-Haul trailer all the way back from Mobile, Alabama, Atmore, Alabama, back to Atlanta. No way. Are oh, you yeah. serious? Oh, yeah. We stopped in Opelika at a gas station, and I went back there to check on them. And they come out the back of that van with their hands over their head going, no speak English, no speak English. I said, y'all better quit before we all go to jail. But yeah, they rode that in that is, trailer all the way home. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, Randy will tell you this day that'll never happen again. <laughs> My wife that was probably the man. I ain't believe it. I was going to say that. You put an old man and a cripple in that trailer, and you rode in the front. I said, Why don't you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow, that is. <laughs> Just like oh. I was saying, people won't, people won't believe some of these stories. Oh no! <laughs> the night oh. I decided to get out of the wrestling business, I got a phone call about two o'clock in the morning. We were on a we had a bunch on a tour up north. An Enterprise Rent-A-Car called me, and they said, Mr. Simmons, we're going to notify you that after this, this lease is up, we will lease you. We will not rent you any more cars. And I said, why? And she said, well, sir, we've uh, we've had several incidents with, with holes in the seats and people smoking in the cars and they're not supposed to and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. And she said, but the, but the kicker was tonight. And I said, what? 
She said, two of your wrestlers tried to drive one of our Lincoln Continental Town cars down the railroad track. And she said, oh, they have no. tore it up so bad that the tie rod ends are broke, and we can't even get it to roll. We're going to have to get a flatbed wrecker out there to pull it off that railroad track and haul it back in. <laughs> this is like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. And I and I made my mind up that night. I said, I am through. I'm through. Uh, it was like running a daycare center for adults. And people, people don't, I mean, you know, we were paying, they were making great money because we were selling out those tours. Barnett was giving them 25 bucks a day to help defer the cost of what they was eating. Plus, we rented the cars for them to travel in. That didn't cost them nothing. Plus, paid their trans up there in the back. That didn't cost them nothing. And they found a way to screw it up. I never understood that because, you know, I, I pride myself on being a professional. And, you know, I couldn't imagine taking a rental car and driving it down the railroad track. Well, they were, they were so doped up. They didn't know what they was doing. Oh, okay. Well, that, that explained it, you know. You should have been around when Michael people. and Terry and Buddy Roberts, first, the Freebirds, first got here. I mean, they weren't. They were just crazy. Hell, I passed them on the side of the road one night, and they were running around chasing each other, trying to pee on each other. <laughs> I mean, they were just nuts. <laughs> we did a we did a joint thing up there with the we we uh we did a deal with the sheik where we ran we ran a Monday and a Tuesday we run Columbus Ohio. And then we were going to run a Monday and Tuesday and take some of our guys over there to be on the card. So I had stayed up there, and I I had done the payroll on Sunday night in the in the uh, I'd sit in the lounge in the back by myself and done the payroll. And I met Barnett that morning about six thirty before he flew home and he signed everything. And I was giving the guys their paychecks, and uh, I went to I went to their room, and I knocked on the door and. Somebody went, who is it? I said, it's a house detective. And I heard him shuffling around in there, and the next thing I hear is Michael saying, Buddy Robert, you open that door, I'll kick your butt. <laughs> I hit the door again, and finally the door cracks open about a half inch, and Buddy looks around, and he goes, oh, it's just Bobby. And he opened the door and said, come on in. I said, pal, I wouldn't come in there if I had one of them nuclear protective suits on. <laughs> so here's y'all checks. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> I know we've got way off, and we're telling stories. But I give you one more. God love his soul. He ain't around no more. But <clears throat> one night we run Columbus. We always ran Columbus on Sunday night. And when the, when the show was over, the plane coming back to Atlanta did not leave Columbus, Ohio, until like four forty-five in the morning. So you either had to stay over or do something to go to the airport. So. Me and Ole and Gene Anderson went to supper, and we were eating. And when we got got ready to go up to our room, we were in the Regency Hyatt house right next door to the Ohio Center. And we, we went to the elevator, and the elevator was opened up. And when it opened up, Ronnie West and this woman had a white fur coat on and a pair of red high heel shoes was standing in there with him. And all three of us got on the elevator. And Ole was like one floor up or something. He was quick. He got on, got off. So wasn't nobody now but me and Gene and Ronnie and this girl. 
And when the doors close, Ronnie goes, why don't you show Gene and Bobby what you got on under that coat? And Gene Anderson, <laughs> Gene never turned around. Did you know, did you ever meet Gene? Oh, yes, I love that Oh, guy. yeah, Gene was funny. He never turned around. He said, if she does, I'll kill you. And that was all he said. And we got off at our floor, and when we got off, I turned back and looked. And, buddy, that fur coat and high heels was all this young lady had on. <laughs> and I told Ronnie the next day, I said, what was y'all doing? He said, I wasn't going to pay for no room. We rode up and down the elevator all night. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know, Ronnie worked for uh, Cold Brother Circus for, for many years, and he got me a job there. And uh, I went to uh, my first year. Every town we went to, somebody different would come up and say, is all, all those stories Ronnie West tell, are all those stories true? And all of them would ask about that, about the elevator ride, because Ronnie would tell them about it, and they never believed any of it was true. I said, yes, it was true. Oh, I yes, said, he, he was. Telling you some of the things he said. Oh, man. Bobby, when Ronnie, when Ronnie first started, with... uh, he was he was working in Tennessee with Goulas, and they had some kind of, I forget what the deal was, but Ronnie was refereeing, of course, and, and the, the baby face, was going to come in and drop kick him in the back, uh, and, and Ronnie was going to take a bump over the top rope. And Ronnie was standing in the ring waiting on a baby face to get there, and somebody threw a cup of ice, and he hit him in the head, in the back of the head, and when he did, Ronnie went over the top rope. Ronnie was just so funny, man. My wife loved Ronnie. Man, you, when we were down in Mobile, tell him about when you was out in the parking lot and Ronnie was helping these people. Hi, Mama, them too. Oh, yeah. We was at Walmart. <laughs> he peeked at this woman. He said, he, he, she's pushing her buggy out. He walked over and he just took the buggy away from me. He said, I'm your Mama, them. She said, well, they're doing quite all right. They, you know. Ronnie walked her all the way to the car, helped her load the groceries and come back in. I said, that poor woman's going to go home and go, Mama? This guy was asking about you. He told another one. He says, "He says, where's the movie truck at?" And they said, "Pardon me." He says, "Pretty as you are, you got to be a movie star. Are they filming a movie here somewhere?" <laughs> I tell you what, the, the the worst thing he ever did to me. We were in in New Jersey together. He, I was um, was doing a couple of towns on one side of the state, and he was he was over closer to it, Atlantic City, but. I was staying in, in East Orange, and he drove over there and spent the day with me. And East Orange has one of the largest malls in the world, in East Orange, New Jersey. So he decided we're going to go to the mall. He needed to buy some stuff, and he wanted to go, you know, just look around and hand out tickets, which was usually what we did in a town. We'd go give away free tickets until the mall security would run us out of there. But he decided he wanted ice cream. He said, come on, I'll treat treat us to ice cream so we were over there getting ice cream and and he got his and and paid for it and i got up there and and was getting mine i i got my ice cream cone i turned around he's nowhere to be seen so i walk a little bit further into the the uh the food court and there's ronnie sitting at the table with this woman who she was so short her feet didn't touch the ground she was sitting in a chair and her feet were just swinging but her her breasts were halfway across the table. 
and he's sitting there feeding this woman ice cream, and she's on the phone, on her cell phone. So I walk over there, and, and, the, and the closer I got, I could pick up her conversation on the phone. She's talking to her husband, who has just come back to the States from Iraq, and he's on his way to the mall to meet us at the mall, or meet her at the mall. And Ronnie's sitting there feeding this woman his ice cream. I'm thinking, Ronnie, do not get me killed in New Jersey. At least let me get close to Atlanta before I get killed. And he's sitting here just flirting with this woman. And and we're still sitting there at the table when this woman's husband comes up. And he walks up, and he's got this look on his face like, what in the world is going on here? And Ronnie starts telling about how wonderful his wife is, you know, telling this guy how wonderful she is, how nice she is. And, you know, he goes into the whole spiel. And I'm thinking, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> but that was him. He never met a stranger. And that, that circus mm-hmm. job was just absolutely perfect for him. Because once he met somebody, you know, we would go to the same towns every year, but we would switch up. You know, some some years I'd have a town that he'd had or Bill Dundee had had it the, the year before, whatever. So, you know, but everybody always knew Ronnie West. I want to know where Ronnie West was. I tell you, man, it was just, I couldn't believe that when, when he, uh, we lost him. That just, that just broke my heart. Well, I went to his funeral and Bobby was doing the eulogy and Bobby, let Bobby tell you about the urn, but he I was, oh yeah, I was there. Always late. <laughs> oh yeah. I that's was there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he got the last laugh. He missed his own funeral. He did. Well, I told this story at the funeral, but it it, it, it it bears repeating about the when Abdullah first came to Georgia, he was a hot commodity because we had never had anybody here like him. And I mean, everywhere we took Abdullah, man, we were just we were putting a bunch of folks in seats. So they ran Somerville, Georgia, and when we would run a town like that, they would generally send a couple of us, one of us a referee, and one of us to run the town. So this particular night, I'm refereeing, and Ronnie's running the town, and, and uh, we're in the ring, and Abdullah, Abdullah buzzed me. He says, Bobby, he says, you got a mark coming in the ring. And I said, well, let me know when he puts his head through the ropes. So he goes, now. Well, I turned around to hit the guy, and when I did, the guy just disappeared. He just dropped right out of sight. And I looked down, and Ronnie had this guy by the collar and the back of his pants. And he took <laughs> off running with him toward the toward the back of the building, and there was a door, set of doors those metal fire doors where you got to push the bar to get them to open. He took this guy's head and opened the door by running his head into that bar. And the last time I seen the guy, he was just flipping out the door. So Ronnie turned around, looked up, and throwed his hand up. I went, thank you. And I turned around. We finished the match. We got ready to leave that night. And I was riding with him, and we went out and got in the car, and we heard something behind us. And we turned around, and here's this guy. He's done run out of the building by his head. And the guy had rode a bicycle to the matches. And he had thrown that bicycle on the ground, and he had balled his fist up, and he said, I'm going to whip y'all's butts if y'all get out of that car. And Ronnie looked at me, and he just reached over and put it in reverse, and we backed right over the guy's bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> we just backed right over it and drove off. And I told Ronnie, I said, God, I hope that wasn't the sheriff's kid. <laughs> Oh, he was funny. Uh, did you uh you you knew Rocket Monroe, didn't you, Ranger? Yes, yes. 
Bobby, tell the story about, that Rocket told. You talking about people Marsh coming in the ring? It was the story that Rocket told Speedy Hatfield down in Mobile with the mark that got in the ring. They were working somewhere down there. You know, you know, Speedy was about eighty years old probably when this happened. They're down there working, and Speedy's refereeing, and I forget what happened anyway. This mark starts in the ring, and Speedy seen him coming, so Speedy ran over and grabbed him by the hair. And snatched him in the ring, and when he did, he run his hand around behind him and grabbed the guy by his testicles. Oh. And he run the guy all the way across the ring, and when he got to the other side, he gave him a little squeeze. And when he <laughs> did, that guy dove head first right over the top rope, right to the floor <laughs> where the cops grabbed him. So he goes back over there, and Rocket says, Speedy, who was that? <laughs> Speedy goes, I don't know, just some guy passing through. <laughs> 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 oh, well, guys, we got about uh, got about four minutes left, so we'll start wrapping up. Go ahead, Ranger. No, I, man, this is this is probably the most fun you could have with your clothes on, sitting here listening to you guys. Oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, well, my jaw is hurting, man. If, if any of our our listeners are curious, what are you doing nowadays, Ranger? Well, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a private pilot. I I I got a flying habit. I'm gonna have to go to rehab or something. I have to, <laughs> <laughs> have to go to rehab and stand up. And go, hi, I'm Ranger, and I'm a flyholic. Hi, Ranger, we <laughs> love you. <laughs> I'll have to go get some help, <laughs> and uh, I, I own a, um, a, a small engine business, and uh, it's a mobile small engine business, and uh, uh, that, and um, uh, preaching the gospel, and uh, that's about it. That's all I need to do. Trying to be a good well, husband, you ever see, uh, good father. You ever see? Uh, Ronnie Garvin up there while you're flying, head the other way. <laughs> oh, God. Ronnie's been known to buzz people's houses. <laughs> he buzzed. He buzzed. He buzzed back McMurray's in a in a DC-10 and got so low that the fumes from the engines killed some of the trees around his house. <laughs> oh my God! Oh yeah. <laughs> You have you wow. ever heard him tell the story about buzzing the boat on Lake Michigan? No. They were going somewhere and he was flying he was flying for a cargo company. Big big D C ten, whatever, cargo plane. And he said uh, the guy that was with him, uh he said they got out over Lake Michigan, saw all the boats and the lights and he said he killed all the lights on his plane. He told the guy, he said, Pick a boat out And said so the guy goes, What are you doing? His co pilot. He said, What are you gonna do? He said, Just pick one. So the guy pulled one out, and Ronnie went down and buzzed it. And just before he got to it, he pulled all the landing lights on. And when he pulled them on, he was staring at a, at a uh, Coast Guard cutter. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, said, he said he killed the lights and climbed as high as he could and got out of there. Two weeks later, they went back to do the same thing. The guy picked the boat out, and he was another Coast Guard cutter. <laughs> he said he didn't do that no more. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh God! I tell you, wrestlers are some of the stupidest people I've ever met. <laughs> they're the most loving people you ever met in your life. 
<laughs> oh my god, that's stupid. <laughs> well, guys, we are out of town time. Ranger, I appreciate you uh, you being on with us, and and yes, it's a tradition. Once you've been on with us, you got a home. So anytime you want to do the show, just let us know. Be, okay, listen, I really back. appreciate it. Man, this was awesome. I really enjoyed this. This is too funny, man. I got to go get some Ben Gay, put it on my jaw because I've been laughing so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Oh, you, this is good. You Thank you guys, guys for having night. me. Thank you so much. No, no, no that lovely wife of yours. I said hello. Okay, I will, Bobby. All right, man. Michael, good listen, man. Y'all be good, man. I love All you guys. Right, man. Take you care. Take, love you take too, care. man. Love you too. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, that's it, Bobby. We will uh, we'll get together uh, sometime in the first of February, and we'll do this one more time. Sounds like a winner, sir. I've enjoyed it. Good night. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.